Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you, and you too. Hey, Todd. Hi, Mark. Hi. Uh, what do you call an alien with three eyes? I don't know. Alien. Alien. Four eyes goes alien. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it was the four eyes that got me. <laughs> well, hello. Ah. Well, hello. We are back finally after another short hiatus. We are limping towards show 100 or 200. 200. <laughs> I believe we're at like 196 or 197 or something like that. Yeah. So, but we are we are getting there. And today we have a very special a special show. So, why don't you tell people what is coming up? Yeah, so uh Launching in the middle of December, right before Christmas on, I believe, December 20th, is the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, we have a friend of the show, uh, Dr. Ethan Siegel, who will be joining us to discuss uh, that and kind of the nature of the universe, the Big Bang. And uh, uh, Dr. Ethan's a, a uh, astrophysicist, and he uh, was a professor at... Um, at uh, Lewis and Clark College here in Portland and is a regular uh, per, uh, contributor to uh, Forbes and to Big Think is the, yeah, the new one. Yeah, said. Big Think is yeah. the new one that he's on. Uh, and and he's j- just phenomenal. Uh, he's got a, a, a huge depth of knowledge and he's able to articulate that to us uh, laymen about astrophysics in a way that is exciting and invigorating and uh, interesting and super informative. And so uh, he was way younger because he's been on the show before, but I wasn't there that week. And when you talked to him and so I'd never seen him before and he is much different than I thought he's (laughs) a younger by like three years than me and has, he looks like every every like metal rock guy that yeah, I know, which totally. is pretty great. So. He wears a, a kilt a lot. He's got a massive black beard, beard and shaved yeah. head, and you know he um, uh, he he's an interesting interesting guy uh, to totally. to to see and to listen to. He's great. Totally, totally. Well, I do have a couple news stories that I flagged. Some of them are less topical since it's been a little week, but I just wanted to get them in there. Uh, The first one is Congress mandates new car technology to stop drunken driving. Under the legislation, monitoring systems to stop intoxicated drivers would roll out in all new vehicles as early as 2026. Really? After Transportation Department assesses the best form of technology to install. Every year, about 10,000 people are killed, which is, uh, and 30% of all traffic fatalities are caused by drunk driving. Uh, right now, they can use things like the breathalyzer where you have to hum and breathe in the, like, the tube to make sure that your car starts. Um, 
but uh, this guy says the most likely system to prevent drunken driving is uh, this is this is shooting to the top of, number one with a bullet in things Todd is currently not looking forward to in the future. The most likely system to prevent drunken driving in cars is infrared cam- cameras that monitor driver behavior. The technology is already being installed by automakers such as GM, BMW, and Nissan to track driver attentiveness while using partially automated driver assistant programs. The, uh, the camera makes sure the driver is watching the road and looking for signs of drowsiness, loss of consciousness, or impairment. If those signs are spotted, the car will warn the driver. And if the behavior persists, the car would turn on its hazard lights, slow down, and pull to the side of the road. And drive uh, they, me to the police department. <laughs> uh, they they said that breathalyzers aren't a practical solution because many people would object to being forced to blow into a tube every time they get in their car, which I agree with. So they'll just hide it out of sight and record our every move <laughs> movement. <laughs> right. Uh, and I believe this comes from uh, the office of your hero, Pete Buttigieg, because uh, he is the secretary of transportation. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, well, the story that's been making the rounds the last couple of weeks, uh, if you live in Portland, the lender to Lloyd Center's owner says it will foreclose on the struggling mall. The longtime de- demise of Portland's oldest shopping mall, Lloyd Center, continues. Uh, according to Bloomberg Log, KKR Real Estate Trust Financed Inc., <laughs> which sounds like a just a homespun <laughs> local community. Mom and pop shop. Mom and pop shop uh, says it was foreclosing on the 61 year old property, which is uh, currently owned by a Dallas based firm, um, along with just the decline, obviously, in malls as retailers. COVID 19 um, has really hit it. And in August of this year, an electrical fire closed the mall for nearly three weeks in the back to school shopping season. Uh, and then it suffered two more mysterious fires. So, um, but the Silver lining is that Joe Brown's caramel corn, Lloyd Center's oldest tenant, says it's not going anywhere yet. So go buy some caramel corn from Joe. Joe Brown is like the Harry Truman (laughs) of Lloyd Center. I love that place. He's going to be there like as it implodes on top of him. (laughs) Just he'll take pictures and then shield the the photo with the camera with his body. Uh, I, I don't think that was that was Harry Truman that did that. No, but it that was, was another some other scientist. hiker or yeah. whatever. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, a story I'm not going to get too, uh, uh, really into at all, but just worth noting is that Facebook as a corporation is renaming itself to Meta, kind of like how a long time ago Google spun off its alphabet, you know, parent company, because everybody knows the name Facebook is toxic and is right. running away from it. Um, Facebook does plan to shut down its facial recognition program. Um, but as our friends over on the Not Nerd podcast talked about this week, so uh, go listen to them. They have a much uh, a much better breakdown of this. But Facebook plans to shut down its facial recognition program. But um, it said it would still consider using its facial recognition technology at Meta. So, like, really, it's, it's as Not thing. Nerd says, they're giving up a tiny bit of information collection, data collection for a massive amount of data collection so wow wow uh, i've got one if oh, okay I, I don't know if you have this on your list but there's a brain implant that is now translating paralyzed man's thoughts into text with 94 percent accuracy 
Wow. So a man paralyzed from the neck down due to a spinal cord injury he sustained in 2007 has shown he can communicate his thoughts thanks to a brain implant system that translates his imagined handwriting into actual text. And so this device, part of the longstanding research collaboration between BrainGate, uh, (laughs) which is a brain-computer interface, or BCI, uh, in this in this case, the man called T five in the study, and who Uh-oh. who is Dude, that man has that man has activated Alexa. <laughs> Seriously, it's <laughs> the other word. I don't know what's going on. He was just thinking about it, and Alexa came on. <laughs> he's he's in the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, at the time of the research, he wasn't doing any actual writing as his hand, along with all of his limbs, have been paralyzed for several years. But during the experiment, the man concentrated as if he were writing, effectively thinking about making the letters with an imaginary pen and paper. And as he did this, the electrodes implanted in his motor cortex recorded the signals of the brain activity, which were then interpreted by algorithms running on an external computer, decoding everything which mentally traced the 26 letters of the alphabet and some basic punctuation marks. And then that had the language encoded. And so then when he, in the future, wrote out his name in his mind uh the uh the brain signals were then reinterpreted and said oh it's m-a-r-k and and uh did it so uh which is phenomenal insane insane and and really um gives me hope for my worst fear of being locked in uh to your body of of having a disease that prevents your motor functions but keeps your brain fine uh, yeah. and uh, this has hope for uh, people and it's awesome wow that's great well Z- uh, Zillow quits home flipping business and cites inability to forecast prices so uh, if people have been kind of following not super closely but the whole housing thing and different companies and corporations buying up houses to rent them out Zillow uh, has been in the house flipping business, um, Zillow, and they're but they're getting out. Uh, it's halting all new home purchase for the rest of the year because they said they had failed to predict the pace of home price appreciation accurately. Um, blah blah blah. They were making twenty billion dollars a year, and now they plan to cut twenty five percent of its workforce. So not only are they just awesome. buying everyone's houses away from under them, they are also. <laughs> now firing all their workers. So um, <laughs> Zillow used an algorithm to make home price estimates called the Zestimate. So yep. I mostly kept it in just so I could say Zestimate. Zestimate. Well, good news. Study finds California condors have given, quote, virgin births. <gasps> Researchers with the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance said genetic testing confirmed that two male chicks hatched in tw- uh, 2001 and 2009 from unfertilized eggs were related to their mothers. Neither was related to a male. The study was published Thursday in the Journal of Heredity, my favorite journal. It is the first report of asexual reproduction in California condors, although that it can occur in other species ranging from sharks to honeybees to Komodo dragons and frogs. Uh, but in birds, it usually only occurs when females don't have access to males. But in this case, 
Each mother condor had previously bred with males, producing 34 chicks, and each was housed with a fertile male at the time that they produced the eggs through what's called parthen parthenogenesis, uh, which is the asexual reproduction. Um, so they believe it was the first case of asexual reproduction in any avian species where the female had access to a mate. Can you imagine that poor, <laughs> the poor dude condor? <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have sex with you if you were the last thing on earth. And actually I'm not even gonna wait for them. <laughs> I'm just gonna have my own baby. I'm gonna hack my biology <laughs> and asexual reproduce. Uh let's She's see. She's her so, own woman. Awesome. <laughs> I don't need no man. Uh condors are the largest flying birds in North America. They once uh in the 1980s, only 22 were left. And then, of course, it was a big deal when the government uh, captured them and placed them in zoos for captive breeding. About 160 were bred at the San Diego Zoo. There are now more than 500 California condors. So they went from 22 to 500, including more than 300 that have been released into the wild. So I remember when that was the big deal. Like I, I lived in San Diego and was a koala club member of the uh, San Diego Zoological Society. And so nice. we, we we were wrapped and, and uh, riveted. riveted. Yeah, it, it was a big deal. And I remember the, uh, the first egg hatching and they had to manually feed the 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 baby and so they yeah. had big puppet uh so that they oh. wouldn't, wouldn't be afraid of the human or or uh. or bond to the human it had to you know have a and so the <laughs> the calendar california condor puppet was amazing <laughs> from the 80s from, from jim henson company <laughs> just a big googly eyes and <laughs> just a skexy you know for, straight out of dark crystal <laughs> All right. Well, I have one last story here uh, before we get into Ethan. Uh, I usually keep my feel-good stories towards the end, but man's genitals suffer bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> man's genitals suffer bite by snake in toilet, comma, causes them to rot. Well, from the Isala Klinanken Hospital in the Netherlands, my, my proud home, Describes what happens to the man while he was vacationing in a South African nature reserve. Uh, he used the toilet. What he didn't realize is that there was already a snouted cobra using that toilet. Uh, he began to, <laughs> he began feeling pain and burning in his privates, and that pain radiated out his groin and up his abdomen and chest. Oh my that word. should be a. Of this article says that should be a groin concern that one needs <laughs> urgent medical attention. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, However, the man had to wait three hours before a helicopter <laughs> had come and bring him to the nearest trauma center. So always look before you uh, pee at nature reserves, I guess, oh, is man. the takeaway from that question. Man. So... Uh, there's one question, actually, before we throw it to Ethan, that while he was talking, I had a series of questions that I knew were just too stupid to ask. So one of them, I, one of them, I will ask you in this shame, in this shame free environment we've created at the Tar Mar Margaret podcast. So he's talking. 
talking right. a lot about different wavelengths and and searching for different wavelengths. And he gave the example of uh, the microwave oven door that has yep. um, round things that prevent yep. big wavelengths from getting through or whatever. My question is that when we're talking about frequencies and wavelengths and light and measuring that, are they all, are all these things the same, I don't know how to, it's the same thickness, I guess, is what I'm trying sure. to, to say is that like, if you're picturing like whipping a rope to make your wavelengths and like kind of mimicking it that way, are all of these things that we're measuring, all these wavelengths, the same particles, the same, like yeah. it, is I a mean, wavelength, a set unit that it just is the frequency yeah. that changes or whatever. Remember, like photons can be waves or particles, depending on whether, oh, yeah. uh, like how we are measuring them. Uh, they're particles once you look at them, and they're waves if you're not looking at them, right? And and so the waves don't actually have any mass; they are interfering with the environment more more than anything else. And so, or it's probably not even a good way of saying it. Right. Um, and we we are able to detect them because of their interaction uh, and like wave interference patterns in the dual slit test. Well, and, and, and like I, that. the reason that I was thinking that because it does make sense that the microwave holes are too small for the wavelength to get through. But I'm picturing like picture picture yeah. a a wall or a fence that has a, like a hole cut out of it, and you have a hose on one side. And yep. you're you're shooting the hose. Yep. That is the origin, and you're making the big things. Well, of course, that's not going to all shoot through the same as if you're just holding it level or whatever. But there still are will be splashes and water or whatever that do kind of make it through that hole. So I was trying to picture yeah. in my mind. Well, think um, think of a string going through from one yard to the other, going through holes in the fence. And so if the string is vibrating with uh, like a one inch uh, wavelength, it can go through a hole that's, you know, two inches, two inches right. big. Right? right. And if that hole was only a half inch big, you would still have the string, but you wouldn't have the wave. Okay. <laughs> the wave gets blocked. And that's why this, this, comparison breaks down right okay, is okay there isn't a string in in looking <laughs> at a, a uh wave from a that's, magnetron that's in a in in a microwave but if you recall um about five or six years ago we experimented with a microwave and we yeah, calculated yeah. the speed of light yeah. by taking a plate of cheese putting it on dog. The, and, and a hot dog putting it on the floor of the of the bed of the microwave and turning it on and as long as it doesn't rotate it's all in the same place you have peaks and valleys from the magnetron of of the microwaves coming out of the magnetron and so we were able to measure physically like six and a half inches or whatever it was uh the the distance between peaks of melted cheese from uh from that and so as long as your the hole that you're trying to go through is smaller than that 
then that microwave won't make it through. But light okay. has a much smaller wavelength. And so it's able to go through those right. little tiny holes. Right. And uh, yeah. And, it, yeah, a, and I guess it, the analogy does break down, but I, I just can't quite figure out why some of it doesn't get through. You yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah. extra spray or because, whatever. But. Because once it's not that wavelength, it's light or heat or some other wavelength that isn't microwave. And so okay. microwave is defined by that wavelength. And so once that breaks down, it's not a microwave anymore. It's <laughs> it's light or heat or some other thing, right? And so you, you right. can diffract, uh, like you can throw light into a prism, white light into a prism and get blue light out at this angle. Uh, and so you can extract or even change the wavelength of stuff which gives you something different than what it was initially so okay that yeah. makes sense all right all my questions have been answered <laughs> perfect <clears throat> well so yes stay tuned for uh well and you can well you gave him an introduction i guess when yeah. we talked to him so you don't need to do that again yeah and so uh so with that, uh, please uh, listen. In please, to- please listen to how badly my AOL joke goes <laughs> about about the satellites going past Pluto. Uh, was that yeah, New Horizons? Uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, with that, uh, let's listen into our interview with Dr. Ethan Siegel. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, welcome back to the Mark and Toddcast. We are here today with Dr. Ethan Siegel. Uh, It's been more than five years since you were on our show last time where we talked about your book, Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered Our Entire Universe, which was a really interesting conversation about uh, the universe and scientific method around it. And we talked about dark matter and a bunch of things if you want to look back at it, an episode. So uh, welcome back, Dr. Ethan Siegel. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be back. It's a pleasure to have both of you here on the show this time. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Hi, Todd. So uh, Hello. hopefully we'll have some great discussions. I'm so excited. I'm up to two books now. So hopefully we'll that number will start increasing uh, a little more rapidly as some of the irons I've got in the fire uh, start to heat up now that the, uh, well, I won't say now that the pandemic's coming to an end, but now that <laughs> I'm vaccinated and boosted and uh, like many people, uh, certain aspects of my life are improving in quality. So uh, I, I hope that for all of you out there, and uh, I also hope that, uh, you know, you're figuring out how to successfully navigate uh, through the world with whatever this new abnormal normal turns out to be. Abs- absolutely. And uh, I, I think I read a note on, in one of your posts on Forbes about the the impact of vaccinations on, you know, basically science as, as we as a humanity, as we are, um, if we prevent ourselves from being vaccinated, uh, we are hurting our, ourselves in so many ways as a uh, society. Yeah, I mean, that it's definitely true. You know, we one of the great, great public health achievements of the 20th century was not just like the mass widespread use of vaccines, but also the fact that we eradicated diseases in humans. Like, remember that word? Remember when that was a goal to eradicate 
certain infectious diseases that used to like kill millions of people and would like decimate societies and like we eradicated some of these diseases like some of the worst ones in history and now it's kind of like you know the attitude of some people is like yeah why would we eradicate a disease when we could just go ah whatever (laughs) herd immunity we're good and and yeah why do something when we can just do nothing (laughs) yeah why pretend like this disease is real where we can say well there's a good chance it's not going to kill me and you know i'm going to get mine so you know you know the second part of that yeah indeed it rhymes with duck all (laughs) y'all Exactly. Uh, Well, cool. Well, I reached out to have this conversation with you because uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is uh, preparing for launch. Uh, Can can you give us just uh, many people are familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope Uh, is how can James Webb Space Telescope compare to that? Is it a successor? Is it a replacement? Is there a relationship between the two at all? Okay, okay. So a lot of questions yes, there. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's start with James Webb Space Telescope is launching next month, December 2021. For real this time. That's awesome. Right? Launch date for real. The telescope is complete. It's passed all of its tests and it's been rigorously tested. All the components are in place. It's successfully assembled. It's been successfully shipped to the launch site and it has arrived safely. All it has to do is get loaded into that Ariane 5 rocket, get launched, and not have the launch explode or go (laughs) too far off course. That's it. And then it can open up, it can reach its destination, it can unfold, it can cool down, and it can start taking data. So that's what's supposed to happen. That's what we expect to happen. it's not a certainty. There's never a certainty, right? It's sort of why like, oh man, when there's like thousand to one odds that everything will go great and you know, you still got to do it because there's a lot of different potential points of failure in there. Um, But when it does open up, you know, you have to recognize that every observatory we build is going to be unique and uniquely powerful and capable of doing science where other observatories have not. So when we think about the universe and all the different light signals that are out there, not all of them are in visible light. We see visible light and stars largely emit invisible light, but there are also shorter, more energetic wavelengths like ultraviolet, X-ray and gamma ray. And then there are longer wavelengths, which are lower in energy, but uh, have a few advantages of their own, like infrared, microwave, and radio. So the James Webb Space Telescope is optimized to go from about the middle of the visible light spectrum, like yellow, yellowish wavelengths, uh, through the near infrared all the way into the mid infrared. So if we measure in terms of wavelength, um, James Webb starts at about half a micron, at about 500 some odd nanometers. And it can observe all the way out to about 25 or 30 microns, which is 
much longer in wavelength than half a micron. We're talking about a large range of wavelengths here. Whereas Hubble can go, it's in the ultraviolet, Hubble can go as narrow as about 100 nanometers, so 0.1 microns, uh, but Hubble sort of craps out once you get to about two microns. So you get all of the optical, but Hubble kind of only gets you partway into the near infrared. And the reason Hubble can't go farther than that, that it can't see those longer wavelengths, is because infrared wavelength is the same as heat. The Hubble Space Telescope, even though it's coated in tinfoil, you know, it's not tinfoil. It's <laughs> coated in a highly reflective metallic coating. Um, it's close to the Earth, and so it always receives the re-radiated heat from Earth because it's in low Earth orbit. It's often in direct sunlight, and despite being coated in reflective material, uh, that sunlight, some of it still gets absorbed, some of it still heats the instruments. So the Hubble Space Tel, and it doesn't have any active onboard coolant. So the temperature it is in space is the temperature it is. And that's what's the limiting factor for it. You also have that it's limited in terms of resolution because it's only a specific size. And that size is about 2.4 meters or, you know, about as tall as, uh, you know, if I got down on my uh, and my hands and knees and uh, someone like Wilt Chamberlain stood on my back, <laughs> that's that's about how the diameter of the Hubble Space Telescope. That's how I'm going to start measuring things, by the way, is how many Wilt Chamberlain's stacked on my crouched body things are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, you know, solid. We'll we'll do anything in the United States to avoid actually <laughs> right. that, gaining an intuition of what how a many, meter how is. Many hands. Like we're not using the metric system. Like how many washing machines heavy yeah, is totally. this? How, <laughs> how many hands tall is this horse? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I'm actually pretty pleased that uh, my uh, my foot is actually 12 inches long. So <laughs> nice. I, I have used that numerous times. <laughs> <laughs> That's, we love our in English engineering system. Um, so you talked about how James Webb is uh, in the uh, the longer frequency, uh, longer yeah, wavelength, lo longer yeah. wavelength frequencies. Uh, why is that more important or why is that important? Well, what's important is to get a view of the universe that's as deep and powerful as possible in as many different wavelengths as you can, because different wavelengths give you different information about what's out there. Um, so when you start measuring in infrared wavelengths, you start seeing things like, hey, uh, when dust and gas and matter in space gets heated up, it's not going to be at generally it's not going to be at like thousands of degrees where we'll see it in visible light uh but if it gets hot enough like you know a few tens or a few hundreds of kelvin um like just really a few degrees above absolute zero uh that counts as warm and we can see it because it starts to radiate so you can see that in the proper infrared mm. wavelengths uh, what's also great about infrared, and this for me is why James Webb is really exciting, is if you take a look at a dark night sky and you go to see not just the stars, but you go to look at the Milky Way, you can see the Milky Way. You can see it's like this faint, white, cloudy outline. It makes a big swath 
through the sky, but it isn't all luminous. The Milky Way has these big, dark, black streaks through it. Those are dust lanes, right? The Hmm. universe is full of dust. And one thing dust is very efficient at is blocking light of a certain wavelength because the dust grains are a certain size. And general rule, if your dust grains are about the same size as the wavelength of your light, they're going to block that light by absorbing it. If your dust grains are smaller than the wavelength of your light. If the wavelength of your light is longer, Mm -hmm. it's gonna do a lousy job of blocking that light. So this is why, for example, you might be familiar with your microwave oven door has these little holes in it, right? These little holes that you can see in because these holes are small enough that visible light can escape. Visible light can pass right through them. But microwave wavelengths, they're like about the size of like your finger. And you can't stick your finger through those holes, even a short way. You can't stick your finger through those holes. So those microwaves can't get through those holes. So this microwave oven is efficient at bouncing the microwaves around inside, but the light can get out. So you can watch your food cook or you can see if it's exploding because you put grapes in the microwave like an idiot. You know, whatever, (laughs) whatever your, you know, poison is, you can be like, oh, yeah, like that's how that works. Um, So, um You know, that's another important thing. So if I were to look at the Milky Way galaxy with the Hubble Space Telescope, you'd see roughly what your eyes see, right? Where I can see the stars, where there isn't a lot of dust, awesome viewing. Where there is dust, well, I guess I'm looking at a whole lot of nothing because the dust is in the way. With James Webb, you can see through the dust. It probes in infrared wavelengths where that dust is largely transparent to infrared light. So we can see things in the galaxy, through the galaxy, on the other side of the galaxy that we can't. And what's very exciting to me, because I'm very interested in how did the universe come to be this way? How did things grow up? How did we go from a period where there were no stars or galaxies to the stars or galaxies we have today? Hubble is limited because very early on in the universe, before you form stars, the universe is full of neutral light blocking matter and it blocks that visible light. So Hubble can see back a certain amount and that's it because there's crap in the way. James Webb can see through that stuff. So whereas the most distant galaxy Hubble has ever seen, it's still more than 400 million years after the Big Bang, James Webb might be able to enable us to see the very first stars and galaxies that ever formed in the universe. Webb is also bigger than Hubble. It has more than double the resolution and about six times the light gathering power of Hubble. So if you were like, okay, well, I need to sit around and collect enough photons to observe this thing, you know, with Hubble, you say like, okay, and I can do it if I take data for like a month. Whoa, I could do it with James (laughs) Webb in only four or five days. That's great. So, um, James Webb is more powerful in a lot of ways, but it's also more challenging in a lot of ways because you have to build it so it observes in the infrared, which is part of why those mirrors have that wonderful gold color to it because gold is the right set of wavelengths reflective 
for an infrared telescope. Um, that's why it has this massive five layer sun shield. And that's why it's going not in orbit around Earth, but like 1.5 million kilometers away. So it can sit at a point where if you lined up the sun and the Earth and you kept going farther and farther away from the Earth, you would come to a point called the L2 Lagrange point. And what's special about that is as the Earth goes around the sun, the L2 Lagrange point follows it. It stays. So it goes sun, earth, L2 Lagrange point. They make that same line. So no matter where earth is in its orbit, the James Webb Space Telescope will always be 1.5 million kilometers away from earth and on the far side of earth from the sun. So you have this big sun shield to block the sunlight. Then it has this active onboard coolant that cools you down even further. The passive cooling will get you cold enough that nitrogen gas would become liquid nitrogen. The active cooling gets you cool enough that, uh, hydrogen gas will freeze solid. Wow. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, which that happens at about 20 Kelvin. James Webb Space Telescope is going to get down to about 7 Kelvin. Wow. So um, that's really, uh, well, it's cool. Uh, <laughs> Literally have a hydrogen uh, brick. Yeah, uh, James Webb is also going to have some outstanding instruments. So you're going to see these awesome high-resolution pictures like you see with Hubble, uh, but you're going to see them in a different wavelength range. So what we're going to be able to see is, you know, we're going to be less sensitive to things that are very hot, like the hottest, brightest, bluest stars, but we'll be more sensitive to things like red giant stars. We'll be more sensitive to things like the ultra cool dwarf stars. We'll be sensitive to things like Jovian planets, planets like Jupiter, uh, if we had infrared eyes, if we could see the same wavelengths that James Webb could, Jupiter would look like its own mini sun because it shines from its own core's heat in the infrared. Oh, wow. um, so we're we're talking about like, oh, like all these things that are out of my everyday experience because I don't see an infrared light, James Webb is going to be sensitive to. Like this is an observatory that for me, like this is like gonna be a quantum leap in infrared astronomy. Before James Webb, the best infrared space telescopes we have have been Spitzer, which was a NASA project launch. You know, it was formulated Spitzer around the same time as Hubble and launched about a decade later. Um, Spitzer was a little like James Webb. It was only a single mirror and it was smaller, significantly smaller than James Webb. Um, but it was able to observe in a variety of wavelengths as long as it didn't run out of coolant. Then it ran out of coolant and it went on to what we called the warm mission where it could still see in the near infrared but couldn't get into the mid or far infrared. And then it ran out of basically the ability to stably point itself. And that was when it was like, okay, it's time to decommission you. Um, like you're not doing any useful science anymore. That was just two years ago. So. Um, Spitzer was great. It had a long life. It took wonderful observations and it allowed us to see some of this stuff, but in low resolution and with limited sets of wavelengths. Now, 
the ESA, the European Space Agency, also had a mission called Herschel, and that was optimized for other infrared radiation wavelengths like mid and far infrared. Um, James Webb, compared to Spitzer and Herschel, is about a hundred to a thousand times more sensitive wow. across all wavelengths. So that's that's extremely impressive. Some of the big finds I expect to happen very quickly are I expect the record for the most distant galaxy we've ever found to be broken. I expect that we will discover our very, very first population of what we call population three stars. These would be the very first stars that formed from the pristine gas left over after the Big Bang. We've never seen them before because by time we see stars, the first generation has already lived and died pretty much everywhere. So we're stuck with only seeing like their children and grandchildren and blah, blah, blah. Um, but after the Big Bang, the universe was 99.99999 99% hydrogen and helium with nothing else. You know, today we've got like one or 2% everything else, oxygen, carbon, and those other loser elements, right? In astronomy, you're either hydrogen or you're helium, or we put you into the other category. And it's the only science where elements like oxygen get called a metal. <laughs> because you're either hydrogen, helium, or, or a metal. metal. James Webb should be able for the first time to observe these theoretical only metal-free stars. Wow. Um, and that's a really cool thing to me too, because not only does that give us an opportunity to say, oh, by the way, we're going to discover this fundamentally third population of stars, but also it's going to be a way to directly confirm our predictions about what elements should be left over and in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang. We've never measured these first stars directly, and James Webb will give us the chance to do that. There's lots of other science that's going to come out of it, but for me, those are some of the most exciting things. I always love the farthest, the earliest, the sure. most pristine, The you know, because you peel back the frontiers of what you know, and if Hubble was the observatory that taught us this is what the universe looks like. And it's done a wonderful job of that. James Webb is going to be the observatory that teaches us how did the universe grow up? How did it go from this early pristine state that we've never really observed sufficiently to the modern universe that we see today? All of these gaps, all of these, you know, cosmic missing links, James Webb should be exquisite at filling in. And if you're interested in exoplanets, in planets in other solar systems around Earth, James Webb is, uh, uh, it's like the ultimate tease of a machine. If you were just like one and a half times the size of Earth, you could find and measure a planet like that orbiting a sun-like star. So James Webb will be really close to being able to find a like Earth cousin, Earth sibling, maybe an Earth twin, uh, but not quite. We're only going to be able to get the slightly super version of that. So, uh, you know, interesting stuff, 
not the holy grail that we're looking for, but also sure. like we're going to learn so much about uh, planets just a little bit larger than yeah. Earth on up. So the Neptunes, the Uranuses, the Saturns, the Jupiters, right. um, it's going to be like a field day for astronomy, hopefully for 10 to 15 years or so until it too runs out of fuel. Gotcha. So as <clears throat> as the telescope is just receiving and compiling information and data and stuff like that, once it's all unfurled and stuff, does it does the telescope and the information it's gathering have a specific purpose at first like we are going to start looking for this or does it just collect data and people are can look for whatever they want is this just like taking a super high resolution picture or something and then handing it out for everyone to go look for their own thing or is it doing like first we are looking for this wavelength to do this thing and then later we'll how does that work so what you typically do when you launch a big flagship observatory like this is what you want to make it is you want to make it an all-purpose multi-use observatory so that if you're interested in solar system objects, you can use it to measure solar system objects. And if you're interested in galaxies or gas or dust, you can use it to measure that. And if you're interested in cosmic objects, you can use it to measure that. And if you're so people are already proposing and have proposed, here's what I want to use James Webb to observe. And there are committees that do it. And also uh, there's like discretionary time where the people basically in charge of the telescope are like, all right, look, we have to do this. Like, this is what we built it for. We want to do this. Uh, but in general, it takes a few months to get the observatory up and running because before you start taking science operations, you have to properly calibrate your telescope. Sure, sure. Uh, it's not like a ground-based telescope where you have people like, I don't know, Ken and Heather who <laughs> sit there at the telescope <laughs> and like make sure that the telescope is putting out correct data products so that astronomers can use it. We don't we don't have them. It's in space. So you have to send the data back to Earth. And thankfully, 1.5 million kilometers is not that bad. We can still get real good data throughput. It's not like when New Horizons went to Pluto <laughs> and we had to wait 18 months for it to finish downloading the photos it took of Pluto. So, no, we don't have to do that. It's not that far away. It's not well, like we're using our 2400 baud so, modem these days. We sent it up so long ago, it's still using AOL. So we have to give it a little a little yeah. time to process. Yeah. New Horizons is a fabulous piece of technology. Don't don't come away thinking like, oh, my God, New Horizons is like using like vacuum tubes in its computers. And like not there's enough. a little person with punch cards in there putting them in the slots. You know, no, we're not we're not doing anything of that. It's not like some 1700s mechanical Turk where, you know, it's this big chess playing machine or something. No, no, no. This is uh this is a real state-of-the-art thing. But yes, James Webb was built later. It was built with superior technology, superior instruments, and it will be closer. One of the things that James Webb is going to be exquisite for, um, and I'm really excited about this, is at taking spectra of things. Spectroscopy is generally not that interesting to the general public because it doesn't make pretty pictures. But spectroscopy is also where you can say, hey, 
you have atoms or molecules you're interested in? Well, we can specifically look for their presence in abundance. So if you're looking at an exoplanet's atmosphere and you go, hey, I wonder if there are like molecules of interest there, like oxygen or nitrogen or carbon dioxide or methane or things that might potentially be biosignatures. If James Webb is capable of seeing a planet or seeing a planet pass in front of its parent star and can measure the spectrum of the filtered light through the star's atmosphere, we can start learning what is the atmosphere of those planets made of. James Webb will enable us to get the spectrum of smaller planets than ever before. And like I said, it's not quite at the level where it can get an Earth-sized planet around a sun-like star, but it's closer than ever before. And it should be able to get us maybe Earth-like planets around something like um, the nearest stars to us, like Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri A or B. So this is uh, this is something that's very exciting to me. It's also exciting because uh, in a few years, the very first 30 meter class ground-based telescopes are going to come online. So when you can start using multiple tools to complement each other, that's when you get a real exciting amount of information. I'm also excited that at least for a while, as long as Hubble remains operational, fingers crossed, knock on wood, you know, then we can have Hubble and James Webb both together capable of observing the same objects simultaneously. And that is, you know, that's a fantastic way to learn all about it. If you were an astronomer and you said, hey, as far as light goes, what's your ultimate dream? Most astronomers would tell you, I want a panchromatic observatory. Doesn't that sound like <laughs> a, uh, a kinky superhero or something, right? <laughs> panchromatic. So, you do like panchromatic observatory, like, whoa, I could get gamma rays and x-rays and ultraviolet and optical and infrared and near mid far infrared and microwave and radio all at once. Like we can't do that, but with Hubble and James Webb together, we can cover like a vast range of wavelengths. We're talking uh, from like 0.1 microns to like 30 microns. That's like two and a half orders of magnitude in wavelength, you know, whereas visible light from 400 to 700 nanometers is like maybe a third of one order of magnitude. So we're talking about being able to see like seven times the range of what visible light is with one single observatory. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's but really that's really cool. Um, is there a relationship between like the recent developments in LIGO and James Webb? Like, uh, will we be able to detect a gravitational event like uh, two black holes colliding and be able to uh, find that with James Webb at some point? Or, or are we talking apples and oranges? You know, you... you uh... 
Can I say yes to both? <laughs> yes, you are talking apples and oranges. And yes, you can potentially do that. Um, we have three operational gravitational wave detectors right now. If all three detectors detect a gravitational wave source at the same time, because we have the twin LIGO detectors and we also have the Virgo detector. Mm -hmm. um, if you can measure a gravitational wave signal with all three detectors at once, then you can use this basically scientific principle that's equivalent to triangulation, right? If you say, okay, I've got an observatory and it saw a signal, what I can basically say is, okay, it's roughly this far away, so I can draw a spherical shell in space to say like, oh yeah, that's how far away the signal is. Well, if I've got one, two, three observatories and I have three spherical shells, they're going to only intersect at one point. So if your shells are thick, you get a region instead sure. of a point. And that's kind of what we got. The first time we were really, really spectacularly able to do that was in 2017 when we saw two neutron stars merge together. And what was remarkable about that is 1.7 seconds after the gravitational wave signal arrived, a gamma ray signal arrived. And then once we knew exactly where that was, uh, we had like 70 different ground-based observatories all go and say, oh my God, what is it? We're going to look. And for weeks and months, they observed that object to learn, oh, wow, this is a kilonova. It was two neutron stars that collided and it formed a neutron star for less than a second, which then collapsed to a black hole and it emitted an enormous amount of chemical elements whose signature we saw. We now believe that these kilonova events, neutron star collisions, are likely responsible for the majority of heavy elements heavier than, you know, like element 40 or something in the periodic table. Like most of those super heavy ones, that's where they come from, is neutron star collisions. Now, if James Webb were up there and we get an event like this, <clears throat> it's going to be far more sensitive than any of these infrared observatories we have. So we might be able to say, oh, you know, we had some infrared light that we saw and we're like, oh, there's got to be some dust there. We can learn so much more about it with James Webb. James Webb is also going to be capable of seeing things that other observatories missed. So for example, right now, when we have two black holes merge and we look for an electromagnetic counterpart, we don't see any. That could be because there is none, but it could also be because our observatories aren't good enough to see it. So if there is something out there that does this, James Webb will be able to see it. And that's really exciting too. James Webb is going to be able to measure planets forming around newborn stars. It's going to be able to be a complement to ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter uh, Array, A is for array, um, which is the largest network of radio and microwave telescopes in the world. And uh, James Webb will be able to be the infrared version of that. So again, 
part of the enormous power of James Webb is giving us this unique wavelength coverage to this unprecedented sensitivity. So anytime you get something like cosmic particles arriving from someplace in the universe or gravitational waves arriving from somewhere in the universe, if you can pinpoint where to look and James Webb looks there, if there's something interesting going on in that particular wavelength, mm -hmm. it'll be able to see it. So uh, James Webb does do what's called targets of opportunity, where basically if like, okay, like, you know, Mark and Todd, you were scheduled to observe your galaxy for blah, blah, blah on this night, but holy crap, like a supernova went off right over there. We're going to steal your time for now. You'll get rescheduled and we're going to use right now to go look at that supernova. And, you know, you guys are going like, oh, no, my research, <laughs> my career, my entire life. And, you know, and the rest of the community goes, yeah, but you guys will live. Your thing will still be there in a week or a right. month or a year. Uh, and this supernova is now. So we're going to get it. So. That's that's a really exciting thing that James Webb is going to bring us is when these serendipitous events happen, we're going to find it. But but for me, I, I haven't touched on this yet. I'm always hesitant when people ask me, like, what's the most exciting things James Webb is going to find? Because I can tell you the most exciting thing that James Webb is going to find that we fully expect to be out there. But what I can't tell you is like the Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns, right? right? Is there anytime you build something where you can see farther or more sensitively or at higher resolution than you've ever been able to see before, that's where the most exciting stuff is. If you had told me, you know, hey, uh, we're launching the Hubble Space Telescope. It's 1990. What are you going to find? I'd tell you like, oh, well, it's named the Hubble Space Telescope because it's going to measure the Hubble expansion rate of the universe. There's been a controversy over it since 1929 when Hubble measured it. So, um, you know, now we're going to solve it. We're going to measure it. And the Hubble Space Telescope did. It pinned it down. It got a value to within 10% accuracy. Fantastic. But that's not even the most important thing the Hubble Space Telescope went and measured. It was all of those supernovae that helped teach us that, hey, guess what? The expansion of the universe, it's accelerating. There's actually some form of energy in the universe that isn't matter, radiation, or the curvature of space, and we don't know what it is, so we're going to call it dark energy. The Hubble Space Telescope wasn't the first telescope to measure that. It was just the best telescope to measure it. And so an enormous amount of what we know about dark energy is directly because we had the Hubble Space Telescope and we launched it before we knew we had any sort of dark energy. So when you're like, what's James Webb gonna find? That's my big hope. My big hope, and, and I'm not afraid to say it, is that we will find something that today at present, we do not even expect to be out there. And that's, that's something fantastic. It's important <clears throat> to remember though, James Webb is a little bit like Hubble in that it's narrow field. It's not right. like these giant wide field telescopes that are gonna observe an enormous chunk of the sky all at once. With James Webb, you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know where to point your telescope. <clears throat> um, but it is also going to do a set of deep field that, observations that just like Hubble question. did, yeah. where you're going to point it at absolutely nothing 
and see what shows up. And that's always really exciting to just say, hey, uh, if we take a look into the abyss of empty space, what are we going to find? Yeah. And uh, yeah, can I, you can I, you just share a little bit that 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 image is so important that that came from Hubble when they when they did that? Can you just talk about that for for a minute about what it was actually really controversial. So Hubble was launched in 1990 and it had that famous flawed mirror problem mm -hmm. where all the images came back blurry. And then we went up and we performed a servicing mission and we changed out the cameras and the optics and we upgraded the instruments. And it was much, much better after that because we had the corrective, uh, you know, we corrected for the flaws. Um, and the director wanted to use director's discretionary time to go observe nothingness. And, you know, it's hard to imagine today, but back then, some 27 years ago, an enormous number of people in the community were livid that someone would waste like weeks of valuable observing time looking at nothing because you're probably going to find nothing there's nothing because you're looking at this region of space and you see there's no stars and no galaxies and no nothing and what are you even thinking so hubble did this this was the original hubble deep field and in the different wavelengths that hubble can observe it went and observed in each of them that same region of space over and over and over i believe the first hubble deep field uh, took a total of, you know, they have a certain amount of time that their images last for in general. Um, I think, I so like one orbit of the Hubble Space Telescope around the Earth lasts about 40 minutes. I believe it took data on that one patch of sky for something like 340 orbits. Wow. So, you know, people are like, oh, that's a lot of time <clears throat> if I do my math. Like, yeah, it is a lot of time. And then we got this image and where we were like, okay, maybe there's like five or six really faint stars in here. Yeah, there are five or six really faint stars in there. Oh, and like 3000 faint galaxies that we revealed by just collecting photon after photon after photon and adding them all up. And wow, we learned what the universe is made of and also what the universe isn't made of. Like we learned like, okay, there are all these galaxies out there, but also these are the galaxies that we see. This is what they look like. We see how they evolve over cosmic time, right? Hubble is how we found most of the most distant galaxies we know of. So we know early on galaxies were bluer in color because they were made of younger stars. They were smaller in mass. They had lower amounts of metals. Now that you know what metals are to an astronomer. Um, and they had um, less evolved shapes or what we call morphologies. So you can actually say how have galaxies evolved over cosmic wow. time? Because you can see a galaxy, you know, from <clears throat> 400 million years after the Big Bang and 1 billion years after the Big Bang and 3 billion years and so on and so on until you get the present day, 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang. And you see how these galactic populations change and how the stellar populations change. Mm. Hubble taught us that we formed the greatest amount of stars in the universe when it was only about two or three billion years old. And the star formation rate in the universe has been dropping ever since. It's only mm. about three to 5% now today of what it was as its peak. 
which is really kind of interesting. But James Webb is, again, going to push those boundaries. It's going to give us data that is beyond everything Hubble gets. So we're going to be able to push these limits even further. And all of these things, these nebulae, if you've seen the pillars of creation, Mm -hmm. famous Hubble image, uh, James Webb is going to be able to see through those pillars and see what kind of stars and maybe even uh, what kind of planets and failed stars there are forming inside. Um, Hubble can't do that. Wow. So, um, you know, there's pretty much any object that you can imagine looking at. If it's got gas or dust or uh, cool stars or failed stars or anything that emits infrared light, James Webb is going to show you something really interesting. And I'm very, very stoked about that. Is there a place in the sky that you can look up and say, the Big Bang started there, and uh, is that a concept that exists, or or uh, is it more muddled than that? Well, a lot of people ask that, right? Because that's what you expect. Because right. a lot of people view the Big Bang as kind of an explosion, and it makes sense when you first look at the problem because you say, okay, we're here, and we've got our own little local group, and we're all gravitationally bound together, and it's us and Andromeda and like sixty little wimps, and we're all bound together in our little group, maybe three or four million light years across, and then you look beyond it and you see, okay, and there's other galaxies and groups of galaxies and big groups groups and clusters um, and all of these other unbound objects, the objects that aren't bound to us, they're all moving away from us. And the ones that are farther away from us are moving away from us faster. And you're like, oh yeah, this is just like a grenade, right? You blow up the grenade, you get shrapnel and the stuff that speeds away from you the farthest the fastest uh, gets farthest in a short amount of time. And so you say, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to reconstruct this explosion, draw everything back. And if I were to do that, where would it be? Right. Right. So you can do this. Uh, You shouldn't do this, but you can. (laughs) You could do this. And if you did, you would say, okay, all these things are moving in all these different directions. And if I trace them all back to a point, roughly, where do they meet? Okay. Our universe is about 46 billion light years in radius. That's the limit of the observable universe, 46 billion. The center of the universe, if you were to trace everything back and say, where's the point where everything meets? It's almost exactly on us. It misses us by about 17 million light years. So by about 0.03%. What? Does that mean we're the center of the universe? (laughs) I see you shake. I see you both nodding your head. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're center of the universe, right? I am going right to my therapist and telling them that exact information. Right. Because because Ethan explicitly said you shouldn't do this, don't do this, but we're gonna do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, the reason you shouldn't do that is because that assumes that this is actually the story that the universe was like a grenade, that it blew up like that and that things are flying away. Here's the thing. If the universe were like a grenade like that, then we would expect as we looked farther away, because a grenade has a finite amount of bits to it, right? the things that are the most far flung should also be the sparsest. We would expect as you right. looked farther away, there would be fewer 
galaxies, for example, per unit volume. And we actually see the opposite. The farther away we look, the more galaxies and matter there are per unit volume. So instead of viewing the universe as a grenade, which is wrong and also violates the laws of relativity, not that anyone cares about that, right? Um, what you should be looking at instead is you should be treating the universe like it is a ball of dough that has a bunch of raisins in it. And what you're doing over time is you're allowing this ball of dough to leaven. The dough is like space. And the raisins are like galaxies and groups and clusters of galaxies. So if you are a raisin in the middle of this ball of dough, all the other raisins as the dough leavens will expand away from you, but they'll also expand away from each other. And the farther away you look, like if you look at a raisin that's twice as far away as another, it's going to look like it's receding from you twice as fast as the closer raisin because you have that extra amount of dough that's also leavening. So, you know, you could say, okay, well, look, a ball of dough has a center too. <laughs> the problem is, however big this ball of dough is, it's at least significantly bigger than the part of the universe that we can observe. So, you know, we can make up a definition of the universe to say like, oh yeah, look how close to the center we are. But the truth is every point has roughly equal claim to calling itself the center, which is to say like calling any one point the center is really based in well, I made a bunch of incorrect assumptions. Let's call that the center rather than there's anything that indicates a center to the universe. Wow. Fair enough. Yep. I, yeah. I, I abdicate my role as center of the universe. <laughs> you, you just wait 10 minutes till I'm off the call and then you can be like, okay, Todd, center of the universe once again. Uh, <laughs> totally. Uh, wow. What... Um, why should people be excited right now about uh, what is going on with you know, James Webb and, and other space entities, space exploration uh, work that's going on? Uh, how, how is that going to make their lives better and uh, what can they look forward to? Oh, I should just pull the quote from Napoleon Dynamite, right? If you get excited about space, then all of your wildest dreams will come true. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> um, Perfect. I mean, really, uh, for me, I, I sort of think about this as, look, you know, have you ever wondered about, like, what the universe is and where all the elements and everything that made us up came from and how things got to be this way and what the fate of the universe is and what the origin of the universe is, you know, for millennia, for countless generations, for the whole of humanity, as far as we know, these have been the great existential questions that we have been asking ourselves. We have wanted to know what is our origin? Where did we come from? How did we get to be this way? What is our place in the universe? Um, these were questions that for millennia, philosophers and theologians and poets wrote about exhaustively. Uh, and like, no offense to anyone who's into those things, but we learned jack squat from <laughs> all of that. And then starting in the 20th century, 
we actually started gathering the relevant data about the universe and all of these questions which we were arguing about like how many angels fit on the head of a pin uh <laughs> we had scientific answers to them science has pulled back our veil of ignorance and we can tell you what the universe's origin was when it had a birthday right it, we call it a day without a yesterday that's the big bang um and we can tell you what the future fate of the universe is. Dark energy implies that things like our local group will stay gravitationally bound. All the other galaxies will accelerate away. And if we wait, you know, 100 billion years or so, we will see our universe looks like the local group is the only galaxies left in the universe because everything else will be trillions of light years away. Um, and the fact that we can understand this, the fact that we can learn this, like this to me is the most exciting stuff there is because this is a cosmic story that unites us all, not just not just you and me and the three of us, but, but everyone on earth, right. every creature on earth, every planet in the universe, every star in the galaxy, like all of this, we all share the same cosmic story. And maybe if we can just remember that for like five minutes, we can stop being such colossal jerks to each other, <laughs> like maybe. And so if you're saying like, well, you know, why should I care about this? It's not going to impact my bank account, right? <laughs> like it's just going to, what, you're increasing my taxes by like a penny so you can pay for this stuff? How dare you, right? Well, you know, I mean, there are people who take that attitude and to those people, I say like, you know, like, okay, like I get it, you know, I'm gonna get mine. And like we said earlier, you know, to hell with all y'all. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'd rather live in a world and help create a world where we learn as much about what's out there and our place in the universe as possible and that we use that to build a better life for ourselves and for all of our fellow humans and earth dwellers as we can and so you know I recognize that like, you know, like, oh, Ethan, you're advocating for everyone to like have this <laughs> cosmic perspective on existence. Like, you know, I recognize not everyone's going to do that. But if you can just start caring a little bit about what we know and how we know it and what is true rather than what would you like to be true, um, I, I think that is a positive direction for ourselves, our species and our society every time we choose it. I love wow. I Perfect. love that. I love that. Uh, we just got a couple couple more minutes with you. Uh, is there anything else that, like that we haven't asked that you'd like to make sure gets shared and and uh, gets talked about you know one thing that i think is really exciting uh we're going to beat the james webb space telescope to launch by probably a week or two uh in early december i in concert with uh three other people two very well-known space artists mark garlic and john lomberg and a wonderful uh, visual and graphic designer uh will lidwell the four of us are going to put together, those of you who've read Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, or those of you who watched Carl Sagan's original Cosmos might remember that there was this idea for an Encyclopedia Galactica, mm -hmm. where we said, okay, 
someday we're going to be able to know and measure all these stars in the galaxy and put together like an atlas of what are the planets like and what is going on in these star systems. Um, well, let's go a step farther. The four of us starting next month are going to do a Kickstarter to put together an Encyclopedia Cosmologica where we're going to start at the Big Bang and every page that you step forward through the book, we're going to move forward a hundred million years at a time to go all the way from the Big Bang to the present day. We're going to have unique, never before seen art. And as the astrophysicist and cosmologist of the group, I will be writing the text of the book. Um, and I am really excited about that. So it's going to be called Encyclopedia Cosmologica. It is coming to Kickstarter in December of this year. And uh, I, I'm hopeful that uh, at least to date, um, this turns out to be the finest thing I've ever created and helped create so far. It's, so wow. that's, I'm a little incredible. excited about it and I'm excited to share it with you on the Mark and Todd cast. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, we will, uh, we'll promote that and, and, uh, <clears throat> let our listeners know. And, uh, where else can people find out more information about you and, and, uh, your, your books and, uh, and what's going well, on with my you? My one-stop shop for everything is Starts With a Bang. That's the name I am online. So if you want to go to my website, startswithabang.com, I've got links to everything. I am Starts With a Bang on Twitter. I'm Starts With a Bang page on Facebook. And uh, I had been at Forbes uh, up until very recently for many years, and I was just lured away by a company called Big Think. So you can follow Starts With a Bang at Big Think now and catch all my latest articles as well. And I also have a Patreon if you would like to uh, support me in what I'm doing. Uh, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, I'm happy to have you join my other uh, 240 or so patrons and you know, sharing a little bit of this journey through the universe with me. Awesome. We, we love you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, yes. let's, let's not, uh, wait another five years to <laughs> talk again. Uh, it, it's, it's always a delight to, to, uh, talk with you. Really appreciate it, Dr. Ethan. Well, I'm really glad you reached out. It was a pleasure to be on your show. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, uh, all the great things that December, and beyond will bring to us. Indeed. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Bye, Bye, everyone. Jeez Louise. <laughs> I feel so stupid. Okay, I'm going to stop recording.